Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the first lecture in a series from R.J. Rushdoony entitled Postmillennialism in America. Listen to the full series and more from Rushdoony now on Canon Plus. Postmillennialism in American History, Part 1. In order to understand the American theological scene, we must recognize its 17th century British roots. The American Puritans both acted and reacted to the British currents of thought. In eschatology in Britain, there were two schools at the time, premillennial and postmillennial. The curious fact is that most of the men who came to the colonies were postmillennial. This made a great difference. The premillennial thinking of the day was unlike the present in that there was no concept of a rapture. The thinking was covenantal, but they believed that Christ would at some point return and there would be a millennial reign before the end of the world. So they did not see as the post-millennialists did, the coincidence of the second coming and the end of the world. The premillennial thinking in the 17th century was deeply concerned with the any moment second coming. A book could be written on how premillennialism over the centuries has been very certain in terms of all kinds of mathematical computations and signs of the times that the second coming was due within a few years. As a matter of fact, one of the great revivals in the Middle Ages came after the year 1000 because the year 1000 was assumed to be the time of the second coming. And when our Lord did not come, Christians realized they had a work to do, and they did it. So the results were dramatic. But in the 1600s, the 17th century, many churchmen busied themselves with computing the year of the second coming. It was believed that Christ would return to establish his millennial reign in the beginning of the 6,000th year of creation, and that was expected to arrive between 1583 uh, and 1588. 
Now, uh, excuse me, 16 and uh, 100. Later calculations altered this, reduced it to 1649 and 1660. As a result, at the time that the American colonies were first being established. In England, a sizable segment of the church was waiting for the second coming. Joseph Mead, a particularly great theologian, was prominent in such thinking. So it did command some of the finest minds of the day. There was, however, an important qualifier. The idea of a rapture before the end of the world, as I indicated, was not in their mind. Therefore, the coming of the Lord was for the premillennialists also a triumph. Added to that, there was the theonomic dimension which was common at that time to both schools of eschatology. Law, God's law, was basic to Christian thinking. The antinomians were very, very few. James Usher, in his Annals of the World, published in 1758, written much earlier, used God's Sabbaths of the land, and especially the Jubilee, as a framework for history. He went all through the Bible up until the end of the New Testament era, calculating the times of the Jubilee, the Sabbath years, when they were not observed because of the nation's sins and the judgments that fell upon Israel for disobedience to God's law. He thus linked God's grace, mercy, and judgment to the covenant law. The Puritans especially the American Puritans, moved readily and easily into post-millennialism. As Ball noted, and I quote, Protestant eschatological optimism deriving from the Reformation achieved its most lucid expression with English theologians in the Puritan era. That optimism included the certainty that time would see the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It included belief in the triumph of good over evil and hope in the ultimate realization of the will of God on earth, unquote. The source of all this was John Calvin, whose commentaries on Daniel and Isaiah in particular, are clearly post-millennial. According to Daniel Day Williams, and I quote, Calvin's rule of Geneva was based on the belief 
that the orders of the world could and should be made to conform with the will of God, unquote. The Westminster Standards assume this same faith. In a number of places, the post-millennialism of the men who wrote it is apparent, as, for example, in question and answer 102 of the Shorter Catechism. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. The early colonists suffered great hardships, but they also, in a generation, created a successful economy and began the structure which in time led to a powerful free nation. Their success, within a very few years, drew others to America, people whose goals were economic self-betterment and not a Christian commonwealth. As a result, within a few years, people were pouring into New England in particular with a particularly bad character. So that when you read some accounts that tell you how terrible the Puritans were because incest, bestiality, sodomy, and other things were regularly in the court records, the answer to that is it was these newcomers who came not in terms of the faith, but in terms of bettering themselves economically. Now, this is a very important fact, because that open door to anybody who wanted to come in not only began in the early 1600s, but continued almost to World War II. Why? The people who were being brought in were hardly of the best character, some were very fine, but many of them were people who were given the choice by countries in Europe and in Britain of either going to America or going to jail. So they came to America. What happened? People with a post-millennial hope welcomed them and converted them as fast as they could. That was their position. That was their optimism, their assurance that because God had said the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, why, they're just sending us potential converts. 
Well, we can better understand the goals of the leaders, not in terms of the cynical historians, but in terms of Captain Edward Johnson, who in 1654 had published in London a history of New England or wonder-working providence of science savior. This was a militant post-millennial statement which declared in part, and I quote, Christ Jesus, intending to manifest his kingly office toward his churches more fully than ever yet the sons of men saw, stirs up his servants as the heralds of a king to make this proclamation for volunteers as followeth. Oh, yes, oh, yes, all you, the people of Christ, that are here oppressed. This was published in London by Johnson, who was in New England. Imprisoned and scurrilously derided, gather yourselves together, your wives and little ones, and answer to your several names, as ye shall be shipped for his service in the Western world, and more especially for planting the United Colonies of New England, where you are to attend the service of the King of Kings upon the divulging of this proclamation by his heralds at arms. Could Caesar so suddenly fetch over fresh forces from Europe to Asia, Pompey to foil? How much more shall Christ, who created all power, call over this nine-hundred-league ocean at his pleasure such instruments as he thinks meet to make use of in this place? No, this is the place where the Lord will create a new heaven and a new earth in new churches and a new commonwealth together." Unquote. For Captain Johnson, the new creation in Christ's work with his people, a mighty step in creating a new heaven and a new earth, was the colonization of America in terms of the Reformed faith. For him, this was a major step forward, a break with the past, an effort in terms of God's work to start afresh, to create the new order of the ages, God's kingdom in the Americas. Even more, as I indicated earlier, Johnson's confidence in that of the colonists was so great that he specifically calls upon the oppressed, imprisoned, and scurrilously derided to join the American colony as volunteers in the wars of the Lord. Instead of an exclusion of such peoples, Johnson specifically invited them. Every ship was met by people who represented the churches, 
who are eager to lead the newcomers to Christ, to be of material help to them, to acquaint them with how to live in the new world. Well, such people did come to America. They were a problem. They were moral degenerates in great numbers, but they were also converted. They were welcomed in Christ's name because they were potential recruits for his kingdom. For generations, exuberant Christians saw immigrants as potential recruits for Christ's kingdom. And it was only as post-millennial hope faded that fears of immigration arose. They were seen first as potential recruits for Christ, as potential citizens of his kingdom. And when that post-millennial faith waned, they were seen as threats. Migration to America became a worldwide hope because of this post-millennial dream that marked for generations the United States and the colonies before it. That hope has circulated the world over that the United States represented a Christian dream a hope in the process of realization. In recent years, we have done everything to dishonor that worldwide expectation of us. Reformed Christians in that era were hostile to antinomianism, they believe that God's law is basic to God's order. It is a sad fact, by the way, that for generations until recently, almost the only one of the Puritan generation who was in print in the United States was Baxter. And Baxter was very different from the others because he had strong tendencies towards antinomianism. That's why he was popular in a way that he was not in his own day. But now the other Puritans are becoming well-known also. In Massachusetts, on December 10, 1641, the Massachusetts Body of Liberties was formulated. This was a summary statement of biblical law, to be the law of Massachusetts. The hostility of the British crown to such a biblical code made adoption impossible, but indirectly the substance of it became law. Let me add that John Eliot, 
the missionary to the Indians, created during Cromwell's years, villages of praying Indians, as they were called, Indian communities of hard-working farmers and businessmen who govern themselves entirely and exclusively by biblical law. When King Charles II came to the throne, he ordered Eliot's book burned by the public hangman and the villages destroyed. In America, the connection between post-millennialism and theonomy was a strong one. Christ's resurrection as the first fruits of the world, made new by his atoning death and his victory over sin and death, requires they held God's law. So the connection between postmillennialism and theonomy is a close and necessary one. How else is God's order to be established? In 1840, in this country, James Henley Thornwell called attention to the fact that historic Calvinism is by nature hostile to antinomianism. It takes only a little thought to realize why this is so. Given the Reformed, or better, the biblical doctrine of predestination, Salvation is entirely the work of God, of his grace. Now the Reformed faith does not attempt to rationalize the faith. Our reason is too small to comprehend the immensity of God's being and his mind. Therefore, the Reformed faith declares that God absolutely predestined all things that come to pass, and yet we are responsible creatures. Our mind cannot reconcile it, but we must accept it if we are to accept the wholeness of God's word. The Reformed faith recognizes God's total predestinating decree, and it also does Full justice demands responsibility. The Bible sets forth both, and we are not to choose one against the other. Quoting again from Thornwell, If, then, God has made our salvation dependent upon anything to be performed by us, it is then not a matter of grace, but of works. The notion that legalism is avoided by ascribing our power to comply with the conditions to God, the grace of God, is a mere evasion of the difficulty. A legal dispensation necessarily supposes power in its subjects to comply with its requirements we would instinctively revolt at the tyranny involved in this uh, opposition, uh, the supposition that Adam was destitute of the power necessary 
to fulfill the condition of the covenant of works. It is hardly conceivable that God would make a covenant with man and solemnly ratify it without giving man the power to obey its requirements. It signifies little whether this power comes from nature or from grace. In either case, it is from God. Man must have it before he can be the subject or the party of a legal covenant. Neither is the principle affected by the thing required to be done, whether it be obedience to the moral law or only sincere obedience or only faith, repentance, and perseverance which are required. Something is to be done. A condition is prescribed, and God's favor ultimately turns upon man's will. The principle of works is as fully recognized in a mild law as a strict one. He as truly buys something who pays only a farthing as he who pays a thousand pounds. If these principles are correct, the Arminianism of Bishop Bull and Baxter and all who coincide with them is a is common ground with barefaced Pelagianism. There is no medium in principle between Pelagianism and Calvinism, unquote. Thornwell was emphatic. It is all of God. We are responsible, but everything is of God's sovereign decree. So we cannot be selective in our approach to the word of God. We cannot legitimately take human responsibility and separate it from God's predestination. Both are true and both must be affirmed. The Bible declares that we are responsible and the law is the measure of our responsibility. Thornwell said further, and I quote, those who deny that the law of God is a measure of duty or that personal holiness should be sought by Christians are those alone who can properly be charged with antinomian principles. The scriptures are so pointed and explicit in pressing upon believers that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, they should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, that it becomes a matter of no little interest, even to the speculative inquirer, to account for the origins of antinomianism, unquote. In other words, antinomianism Thornwell held is totally impossible to substantiate from Scripture. John Gill, in the cause of God and truth, exploded every text used by Arminians. If the law is denied, sanctification is denied. 
then holiness is no longer what the Bible is requiring of us, only easy believism. But if the law has its due place as the way of holiness, then we are able to deny us to sin a resting place in our lives. At the same time, our application of the law destroys the power of sin in our lives, and it also destroys its power in our society. By this means, we extend Christ's kingdom and succeed in attaining the post-millennial vision of a restored earth as a great and marvelous realm of Christ, our King. The dual emphasis on God's predestination and human responsibility helps us avoid what Thornwell saw as too common, saying, the gospel, like its blessed master, is always crucified between two thieves, legalists of all sorts on the one hand and antinomians on the other, the former robbing the Savior of the glory of his work for us and the other robbing him of the glory of his work within us, unquote. Again, as Thornwell summarized it, holiness so far from being the cause of salvation is a part of it. Holiness is a benefit received and not a price paid. A doctrine of work sees man's work as efficacious towards salvation, or as a doctrine faithful to Scripture sees works as God's Spirit in our lives, a product of grace, not a cause of it. In 1676, Charles II suppressed many colonial liberties and made the colonies more strictly under royal control. At the same time, colonial eschatological thinking had become premillennial and pessimistic. They looked too much to the events in Britain and the defeat of the Puritan cause and less to Scripture and shifted their ground. But with Jonathan Edwards in the mid-18th century, post-millennialism had a major revival together with the emphasis on theonomy. The two over the centuries have gone together. In the doctrine of original sin defended, Edwards said uncompromisingly, and I quote, The law of God is the rule of right, as Dr. Taylor often calls it. It is the measure of virtue and sin. So much agreement as there is with this rule, so much is there of rectitude, righteousness, or true virtue, and no more. And so much disagreement as there is with this rule, so much sin is there. Do you see what Edwards was saying? 
We become world conquerors. We exercise dominion by means of the law. And if our use of the law of God wanes, then justice wanes. Then our post-millennial hope begins to disappear. Now, it is interesting that in his thinking about end times, Edwards was emphatically God-centered. This was an emphasis that is gone in modern-day eschatological thinking, especially among the pre-mills. Some years ago, about 30, 40 years ago, in a church I will not mention, a very wealthy and powerful member ordered me to cease and desist from any more preaching about the Old Testament and its law and about victory in the post-millennial sense. It, victory was only an inner victory. His wife exploded all over me because if I were right, then Christians, she said, won't escape the tribulation and I'll have to go through it. And she said, how can Jesus expect me to go through the tribulation when I gave up two things I loved so much, smoking and dancing? The emphasis of Jonathan Edwards was not on what the Christian wanted, but only on God's holy purpose, God's own glory. As a result, his writings are very alien to modern eschatologies. But Edwards was not too unusual in this. The modern concern is, what will happen to me and to the world? Edwards, in his post-millennialism, had only one goal, to proclaim the holy purposes of the triune God and his victory. This one fact tells us how far astray our contemporary millennial thinking is. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full series, Postmillennialism in America, now available on Canon Plus. Mm-hmm.